Welcome to this session of the Religion and Bioethics Conference at Princeton University. My name is Eric Gregory, and I teach in the Religion Department here at the University. It's my great pleasure to introduce our speaker for this session, Gilbert Mylander. It's a particular pleasure for me to introduce Professor Mylander because he is one of the leading figures in my field of religious ethics. Professor Mylander is no stranger to Princeton. Having received his PhD from the Religion Department in 1976, he began teaching at the University of Virginia and for much of his career was at Oberlin College. He is currently the Richard and Phyllis Duesenberg Chair in Christian Ethics at Valparaiso University. In addition to his prolific writings in academic journals, he's also published in more popular forms for public intellectuals. He's also published several important books in moral theory and social ethics, including The Taste for the Other, The Social and Ethical Thought of C.S. Lewis, Friendship, A Study in Theological Ethics, The Theory and Practice of Virtue, and Faith and Faithfulness, Basic Themes in Christian Ethics. He's a noted authority in the field of bioethics and the relation of Christianity and modern science. His books, The Limits of Love, and Body, Soul, and Bioethics, and Bioethics, a Primer for Christians, are perhaps the foremost theological examinations of bioethics in the past 20 years. Please join me in welcoming Professor Gilbert Mylander, who speaks to us today on the topic, Between the Beasts and God. Thank you very much, Eric, for that a little too generous introduction, I think, but, um, but I'll take it uh, nonetheless. I'm pleased to be here, uh, uh, honored to be on the same program with uh, Jim Childress and Tom Murray and John Robertson, especially pleased to have uh, Jeff Stout uh, as my respondent because Jeff and I were graduate students uh, together, almost exactly uh, together, uh, in fact. And one of the most remarkable things is that 30 years later, um, with everything that's changed, the two of us look almost exactly the way we did when, <laughs> when we were graduate students together. I do appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to come back here. Um, it happens only occasionally, and when it does, my first thought has always been the thought I had yesterday when I came into town, that you forget how pretty. Uh, Princeton is, and, uh, and it is lovely. I had some time uh, when I, after I got here mid-afternoon to wander around, which I did, made my way all the way down to the Lawrence Apartments where I lived and saw that the, the big tree is still out there outside Building B under which my oldest son played when he was a very little boy. Uh, so I appreciate the opportunity uh, to do that, even if, uh, uh, even if you had other reasons for inviting me. Princeton's Center for the Study of Religion is evidently drawn to big questions. Uh, what does it mean to be human? But when a Center for the Study of Religion invites one to reflect on such a topic with specific reference to ethical and theological questions raised by the pressure of scientific advance, it seems to be asking in some ways for something that is almost less argument than articulation uh, for the unfolding of a vision. 
And that's what I'm going to try to do. But this articulation cannot be generic, for all study of generic religion is parasitic upon actual believers who inhabit a tradition of faith. When for 18 years I taught in Oberlin's excellent Department of Religion, I used to say only slightly with tongue-in-cheek that uh, many of the students who majored in religion uh, did it because they studied it because they uh, they had hopes of getting the, uh, sort of a handle on the big picture, a handle on the cosmos, but that they would be very disappointed if that big picture should turn out to commit them to anything in particular. Well, I want to do the Center for the Study of Religion the honor of assuming that it is interested in particular religious visions of the human, and I shall therefore do my best to unfold a Christian angle of belief, especially as it touches on some important issues in bioethics today. Roughly, uh, the direction that I'm going to be taking is that I will be trying to think about the meaning of our humanity in relation to uh, uh, the beginning of life and the end of life. And then having done that, uh, I'll take up a, m a much larger question for moral reflection that grows out of the kind of vision that I will have unfolded, question about limits on human responsibility to uh, to relieve suffering. So that's, that's sort of roughly the direction in which I am, uh, I am heading. Near the beginning of the 24th and last book of Homer's Iliad, called by Simone Weil, the only true epic the West possesses, even the gods, detached as they are in their bliss from all suffering, have seen enough. Achilles has become inhuman. Ignoring our animal nature, our kinship with the beasts, he neither eats nor sleeps. Indeed, since the death of his friend and comrade Patroclus, the only food he wants is slaughter of the Trojans. You talk of food, he says to Agamemnon, who has argued that the Greek warriors must eat before they return to battle. I have no taste for food. What I really crave is slaughter and blood and the choking groans of men. He has vowed, indeed, to throw 12 young Trojan warriors on the funeral pyre he will build for Patroclus, a human sacrifice to the memory of his friend. And, of course, he continues to tie the corpse of Hector to his chariot and drag it three times daily round dead Patroclus. Achilles is inhuman. He cannot acknowledge the limits of bodily life, in particular our mortality. He cannot acknowledge that we are less than immortal gods, and that therefore our actions must have limits and our lives must recognize bonds of human community across the generations. Another human being, a fellow human being, does not impose upon Achilles what Simone Weil called that interval of hesitation before one who is our equal in dignity. Brilliant, proud, godlike Achilles, all adjectives that Homer uses of him, is not a man, acknowledging no limits, acting as if he were himself more than human, he becomes in Homer's characterizations less than human, like some lion going his own barbaric way, like inhuman fire raging on through the mountain gorges splinter dry. Apollo makes the case to stop what is happening. Achilles has lost all pity, no shame in the man. And with the help of Zeus, Priam, the aged Trojan king, comes to Achilles' tent to plead for the return of the body of his son, Hector. And in one of the most famous scenes in the history of our culture, 
Priam puts to his lips the hands of the man who killed my son and reminds Achilles of the bond between the generations. Remember your own father, great godlike Achilles. Those words stirred within Achilles a deep desire to grieve for his own father. Taking the old man's hand, he gently moved him back, and overpowered by memory, both men gave way to grief. Priam wept freely for man-killing Hector, throbbing, crouching before Achilles' feet, as Achilles wept himself, now for his father, now for Patroclus once again, and their sobbing rose and fell throughout the house. The gods may live free of such sorrows, Achilles tells Priam, but we wretched men live on to bear such torments. The fact of human mortality undergirds the bond of human community. One generation dies that another may succeed it, though not without a sense of loss and sorrow. To be human is to be born of human parents, to have a place in the affective tie that binds together the generations of humankind. So come, Achilles says to Priam, we too, old king, must think of food. Acknowledging once again his own place within society and the limits of his mortal flesh, he eats, sleeps, and takes Perseus, now restored to him, to his bed. Commenting on the poem, Bernard Knox notes that now at last Achilles occupies man's central position between beast and God. He is no longer godlike Achilles, nor some lion going his own barbaric way. And precisely in being neither, his true humanity in all its nobility, dignity, and pathos is displayed. Likewise, at the beginning of St. Mark's Gospel, Jesus, as the representative Israelite and therefore representative man, is depicted precisely as one who in his humanity stands between the beasts and God. Having been baptized by John and declared the beloved Son of God, Jesus is driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, the beginning of his great battle with Satan, recorded in the Gospel. And St. Mark writes, he was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. The beasts may be mentioned simply to accentuate the loneliness of the desert as a place of testing and struggle. But more probably, as Dennis Nynam wrote, they are thought of as subject and friendly to Jesus, and hence, the passage should be understood against the background of the common Jewish idea that the beasts are subject to the righteous man. Cared for by the angelic servants of God, Jesus simultaneously exercises Adam's dominion over the animals. He stands where one who is truly human ought to stand, between the beasts and God. He occupies an in-between. The story of this true man culminates in a resurrection of the body, that is, in a vindication of the creation. It teaches us to honor the trajectory of human bodily life from birth to death, from the dependence that marks our birth to the dependence that marks our aging and our dying. We are mortals, not immortals, but we are mortals whose special place in creation and whose longing for something more than this life alone can give has been, have been vindicated by the triumph of Christ. And so we must learn to honor this bodily life without asking of it more than it can be or offer. If this is what it means to be human, 
It may be no surprise that bioethics, concerned as it is with bios, with biological life, should, especially at its most philosophical, focus so much attention on the beginning and end of life, on birth and on death. For they are connected more profoundly than as simply the beginning and the end points of a life. To give birth to one like oneself, out of the very substance of one's own being, is even if unwittingly to nod in the direction of our mortality. Anyone who has had a child will recall how the experience of becoming a parent immediately gives one a different perspective on one's own parents. We stand in a line of succession. We give birth to those who take our place, even though they do not precisely replace us. If we stand between the beasts and God, within that affective tie that binds together the succession of human generations, we occupy a distinct place within the creation, a place that is passed on from parents to children in the act of begetting. One can deny this, of course, though not without paying a certain moral cost. So, for example, in his Discourse on Inequality, Rousseau allows himself to speculate about whether the orangutan might be a variety of man. We lack sufficient knowledge to decide, he says. But then he writes, there would, however, be a method by which, if the orangutan and others were of the human species, the crudest observers could assure themselves of it even by demonstration. But since a single generation would not suffice for this experiment, it must be considered impracticable because it would be necessary for what is only an hypothesis to be already proved true before the experiment that was to prove it true could be tried innocently. Rousseau means, of course, that if human beings and orangutans could successfully interbreed, it would be demonstrated that they were of the same species. And we may suspect that Rousseau's claim that the experiment could not be tried innocently unless it were known in advance that, the, that orangutans were themselves human may be less sincere than his playful willingness to contemplate in the name of course of research acts of bestiality that would deny any distinct place in the creation to humanity. It should not really surprise us that Rousseau might toy with such possibilities. In his Reveries of the Solitary Walker, though doubting whether true happiness is attainable, he describes his notion of the kind of happiness appropriate to a human being as follows. But if there is a state in which the soul finds a solid enough base to rest itself on entirely and to gather its whole being into without needing to recall the past or encroach upon the future, in which time is nothing for it, in which the present lasts forever without, however, making its duration noticed and without any trace of time's passage, without any other sentiment except that of our existence, and having this sentiment alone fill it completely. As long as this state lasts, he who finds himself in it can call himself happy with a sufficient, perfect, and full happiness which leaves the soul no emptiness it might feel a need to fill. What do we enjoy in such a situation? Nothing, <laughs> nothing external to ourselves, nothing if not ourselves and our own existence. As long as this state lasts, we are sufficient unto ourselves like God. He wants to be godlike. Desiring that, he is bound to lose the sense of our humanity, 
that in-between place that distinguishes us not only from God, but also from the beasts. Desiring to be like God, he can contemplate the possibility that he might be a fit mate for an orangutan. In our own time, as we have come to think of ourselves more and more in terms of will and choice, Hobbes' masterless men, we have transformed the meaning of birth. The bodily act of begetting by which parents transmit their humanity to their children can become an act of technical mastery over that part of nature which happens to be the human body. Here I do not bother to note the various ways in which we do this. Article after article tells the story. Nor will I give heed particularly to ways in which new reproductive technologies, or should the day come, cloning, can subvert the meaning of parenthood. I will look from the other side at what it means to be a child who is a product rather than a gift. Compare two rather different ways of picturing what it means to have a child. On the one hand, we might, indeed we have increasingly come to picture it this way, something like this. Because having children is something people want for their life to be full and complete, because having children is an important project for so many people, we ought to use our technical skills to help them achieve what they desire, a child and quite possibly a child of a certain sort. Indeed, having children, and perhaps children of a certain sort, is an entitlement to which there can be few limits. If the suffering and disappointment that infertility brings can be relieved, if people who desire a child can live more fulfilled lives by achieving that aim, then reproductive technologies are a good thing. We rightly use our technical mastery to augment human happiness by satisfying our individual projects, our desire for a child of one's own. A storyline of that sort increasingly dominates our thinking. But now, on the other hand, compare that way of thinking to a rather different image of the child, an image that emerges in Galway Cannell's poem, After Making Love, We Hear Footsteps. I know it's not easy to listen to somebody read you a poem, but um, it's a very good poem. You'll, you'll be glad uh, uh, to have heard it. Um, you, you ha it's, it's the last couple lines that uh, are particularly important for me, but, but we have to make our way there uh, through the poem. After making love, we hear footsteps. For I can snore like a bullhorn or play loud music or sit up talking with any reasonably sober Irishman, and Fergus will only sink deeper into his dreamless sleep, which goes by all in one flash. But let there be that heavy breathing or a stifled come cry anywhere in the house, and he will wrench himself awake and make for it on the run, as now we lie together after making love, quiet, touching along the length of our bodies, familiar touch of the long married. And he appears in his baseball pajamas, it happens, the neck opening so small he has to screw them on, which one day may make him wonder about the mental capacity of baseball players. And and flops down between us and hugs us and snuggles himself to sleep, his face gleaming with satisfaction at being this very child. In the half-darkness, we look at each other and smile and touch arms across his little startlingly muscled body, this one whom habit of memory propels to the ground of his making, sleeper only the mortal sounds can sing awake, this blessing love gives again into our arms. This is a child who is not his own 
or her own, or even what is a little closer to the truth, their own. We are, in fact, almost pressed to eliminate that little word, own. This child is no one's product or project, but a gift received, a blessing love gives into our arms. In the passion of sexual love, a man and woman step out of themselves and give themselves to each other. So we speak of sexual ecstasy, a word that means precisely standing outside oneself, outside one's own will and purpose. No matter how much they may desire a child as the fruit of their love, in the act of love itself, if it's to be love, they must set aside all such projects and desires. They are not any longer making a baby of their own. They are giving themselves in love. And if in that act, then, they have neither projects nor purposes, the child, if a child is conceived, is not the product of their willed creation. They undertake no projects in that act of ecstasy. The child is a gift and a mystery springing from their embrace, a blessing love gives into their arms. This makes a difference in how we understand the meaning of children. A product that we make to satisfy our own aims and projects is one whom we control, and indeed over whom we increasingly exercise quality control. A gift who springs from our embrace is one whom we can only welcome as our equal. We are not divine makers, but human begetters. And the child is not the product of our will of any quasi-divine fiat, but simply one of us who takes his or her place in the community of human generations. Being of our being, these children are mortal. So ineluctably, we find ourselves forced to think not only of birth, but also of death. Here, too, the often admirable urge to do good all too easily becomes a desire for mastery without limits. More than 30 years ago, Princeton's Paul Ramsey wrote Chapter 3 of his Patient as Person. That chapter, titled On Only Caring for the Dying, remains one of the classic pieces of writing in bioethics. Thinking self-consciously from within a Christian perspective, Ramsey noted how our desire to master death can turn in two seemingly opposite directions. We may strive to extend life as long as possible, or we may decide to aim at death when the game no longer seems worth the candle. Seemingly opposite, these two tendencies within our culture have their root in that same fundamental desire to be master of death. We will hold it at bay as long as we can, and then we will embrace it when that seems to be the only way left to assert our mastery. Neither way acknowledges the peculiarly in-between place that human beings occupy in the creation. A living dog is better than a dead lion, says Koheleth, as if the nobility of human life were to lie only in its duration. When our goal is simply to ward off death, to stay alive as long as possible, we miss an essential element in our humanity, the trajectory of bodily life that begins independence and moves at the end once again toward dependence and death. 
we miss our mortality, and perhaps more important still, we misdirect the longing buried at the heart of human existence. Our hearts are restless, St. Augustine wrote, until they rest in God. That is, what the human heart desires is not simply more years. That offers quantity and continuance, which is more of the same, when what we desire is something qualitatively different. Whatever has undergone no change certainly has continuance, Kierkegaard writes, but it does not have continuity. Insofar as it has continuance, it exists, but insofar as it has not one enduring continuity amid change, it cannot become contemporaneous with itself and is either happily unconscious of this misalignment or is disposed to sorrow. Only the eternal can be and become and remain contemporaneous with every age. Even were we to master aging and dying, we would not have achieved the heart's desire. For the longing for God is not a longing for more of the same, for more of this life. Were we simply another animal, our good might lie in warding off death and preserving bodily life. But we are not, and it does not. Standing between the beasts and God, our being opens us to God. The deepest chasm in our being is our need not for more years, but for God. Neither, however, should we embrace death, aim at it for ourselves or others as if it were an unqualified good. Whose life is it anyway, I may ask? Have I not been making decisions about this life of mine for years now? Should I not be free to end it if I wish? Such questions come quite naturally to us, but to give them moral standing is to live a lie. We are earthly, mortal creatures whose being is nonetheless open to God. We are not just animals, for we are open to God. We are not gods, for we are open to God. Indeed, we are never quite the independent individuals that we like to think we are, as the umbilical cord ought to remind us. And we deceive ourselves if we suppose that freedom is the sole truth of human existence. If we begin with the story of our creation, we have to say that the author of our being has authority over us. If we begin with the story of our reconciliation and say Jesus is Lord, we have to say with St. Paul, you are not your own, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. In either case, the project of mastering death of aiming at it for ourselves or others is a delusion, embracing as a good what should be simply undergone. Edgar, in Shakespeare's King Lear, gets the attitude about right. Men must endure their going hence, even as they're coming hither. Ripeness is all. Here again, the temptation to be more than human may leave us less than human. Taking control of dying, taking aim at life through practices such as euthanasia or assisted suicide, invites us to ignore our shared humanity. Not all born of human parents, not all who share in the bond of human generations over time, will then seem equal in dignity if and when those practices become accepted among us. To be equal in dignity, it will then not suffice to be a member of the human community, it will be necessary to exercise those capacities of reason and will that make mastery 
possible. What seems at first like an expansion of our compassion for those who lack these capacities very quickly becomes a restriction of the scope of human community as they become candidates for elimination. From within the human community, the full number of those who occupy that in-between place, a great divide erupts. Some exercise godlike mastery. Others, like the beasts, are put out of their misery. To be human, then, is to learn to live and to love within limits. The limits of our embodied mortal life, the limits of those whose being opens to God. It is to acknowledge, honor, and esteem the particular place between the beasts and God that we occupy in the creation. One need not, however, contemplate for long the vision of humanity that I have been unfolding before a certain kind of problem inescapably arises. Maybe lots of problems, but I'm only going to worry about one. To accept, even to affirm and honor such limits in our coming hither and our going hence is to accept suffering that we might possibly relieve. It is to admit that there is good we might in our freedom accomplish, which we should not attempt, because what we do counts for even more than what we accomplish. The fates have given mortals hearts that can endure, Apollo says, addressing the gods to argue that Achilles' inhumanity must be stopped. Achilles must somehow come to accept the meaning of mortal life, the limits that must be endured, not because we are unable to transcend them, but because we ought not. Can it be right to accept limits even on the good that we might accomplish? That's the, 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 the issue that inevitably arises. One response, and of course it is a perfectly legitimate response, is to note that we may find other morally acceptable ways to relieve suffering and do good. To the degree that this is possible in any given instance, we have every reason to be glad and no reason to oppose it. But simply to take refuge in, in, in such hopes and possibilities is to make our life far too easy. We have to reckon with the fact that honoring the limits of our in-between condition may mean there is good which in our freedom we might accomplish, but which we nevertheless decline to do. Can that possibly be reasonable? Discussing some sermons of St. Augustine, first preached probably in the year 397, but newly discovered only in 1990, Princeton's Peter Brown notes that Augustine was often required to preach at festivals of the martyrs. This was a time, Augustine's time, when the cult of the martyrs was of profound importance to the average Christian because persecution was still a very recent memory. And the martyrs were the great heroes. They were the muscular athletes and triumphant stars of the faith. But Brown suggests one can see Augustine quite deliberately making the feasts of the martyrs less dramatic so as to stress the daily drama of God's workings in the heart of the average Christian. For that average believer did not doubt that God's grace had been spectacularly displayed in the courage of the martyrs. What that average believer was likely to doubt, however, was whether such heroism could possibly be displayed in his own less dramatic and more humdrum day-to-day -day existence. And so, Brown writes, Augustine points away from the current popular ideology of the triumph of the martyrs 
to the smaller pains and triumphs of daily life. And an example of how he does this is quite instructive for our purposes today. God has many martyrs in secret, Augustine tells his listeners. Sometimes you shiver with fever. You are fighting. You are in bed. It is you who are the athlete. And Brown comments, Exquisite pain accompanied much late Roman medical treatment. Furthermore, everyone, Augustine included, believed that amulets provided by skilled magicians did indeed protect the sufferer, but at the cost of relying on supernatural powers other than Christ alone. They worked. To neglect them was like neglecting any other form of medicine, but the Christian must not use them. Thus, for Augustine to liken a Christian sickbed to a scene of martyrdom was not a strained comparison. Here is a vision of life, and a rather noble one at that, for which minimize suffering is not the only or the primary imperative. It directs our attention not only to what we do or accomplish, but to the kind of people we are. A number of years ago, the philosopher J.B. Schnaven wrote an article with the seemingly puzzling title, The Divine Corporation and the History of Ethics. In it, he sketched a way of understanding an ethic, the traditional received Christian ethic in many respects, in which one's moral responsibilities are always limited. To be sure, Schneeven did this in part for the sake of explaining how modern moral philosophy had developed by turning away from that received ethic. But to understand it is to comprehend something of the vision of humanity that I have been trying to unfold. Think of our world as a cooperative endeavor created, ordered, and governed by God. In it, as in any cooperative endeavor, participants, participants play their roles, carry out the tasks assigned to them, and in so doing, they join together to produce a good which none of them could have produced alone. No one participant is responsible for achieving the good of the whole or the best overall good possible, and yet the work of each is ordered somehow toward that good. Sometimes individual agents will see more or less clearly how their tasks are related to the overall good, and in such cases they will need to take that into account, and they could perhaps be criticized if they ignored the general good while noting that they had fulfilled their assigned task. At such moments, they may need to act creatively in ways that are not simply given in any role. There may be other times, however, when an individual cannot really see the larger good his assigned duty serves, and in such cases, he cannot be criticized for ignoring the larger good while minding his own business, or he simply doesn't know that larger good. We can imagine a world in which the overall good is very important, but also very complex, far too complex for any individual agent to be always sure of how his own work contributes to achieving it. And we can also imagine that the supervisor in charge of this supremely important but very complex project is able to foresee problems and deal with emergencies, is fair in his supervision, and is good, too good ever to assign duties that would be improper from any point of view. That world imagined as a cooperative endeavor with God as that uniquely qualified supervisor is the divine corporation. Changing from a workplace metaphor to a more literary one, we might think of these agents as characters in a play. 
They know the part given them, and each must play it in his own way with his own particular flair and interpretation. But none of them is the dramatist or the director, and none of them knows how the plot of the play is to be satisfactorily worked out. This is our situation. We are not the author, but characters in the story under authority. C.S. Lewis put the metaphor this way. We do not know the play. We do not even know whether we are in Act 1 or Act 5. We do not know who are the major and who the minor characters. The author knows. That it has a meaning, we may be sure, but we cannot see it. When it is over, we may be told. We are led to expect that the author will have something to say to each of us on the part that each of us has played. The playing it well is what matters infinitely. Whichever metaphor we prefer, it is clear that if God recedes as a governing, directing, authorial presence, whose responsibility it is to see to the good of the whole or work out the plot of the play, then human responsibility perhaps correspondingly increases and intensifies. That, as Schneeven suggests, is at least in part the story of modern moral philosophy. It is common and for certain purposes quite helpful to contrast the approaches of Bentham and Kant. Read any introduction to a bioethics anthology and you'll see that done. To find in them the uh, sort of two quite different normative paths, consequentialist and deontological, that modern moral philosophy has undertaken. But in another way, seen against the background of the divine corporation, they are quite similar. Lacking either nature or nature's God to supervise and direct that divine corporation, our moral responsibility increases. It becomes our task to determine and achieve the overall good or to find principles of action that can be willed universally. Suppose a child is born with severe physical or mental defects. Suppose someone suffers greatly while dying. Who bears responsibility for that? Who must somehow make it good? In something like that divine corporation model, God is finally responsible, and hence we have had centuries of reflection on theodicy by believers. But if God, that uniquely qualified supervisor, is eliminated from the picture, either no one is to blame or we are. Either no author is at work bringing the plot of this story to a satisfactory conclusion, or we will have to sit down at the word processor and assume that divine authorial responsibility. There's no need for theodicy any longer, as if we needed assurance that God would work things out. The need, rather, is that we see ourselves as responsible to make things work out. And so we are tempted to step out of our in-between place, to forget that as we seek to be more than human, we may become less than human. We can see a practical illustration of this if we consider the widespread, indeed now almost routine, practice of prenatal screening of infants in the womb. Suppose we decline to screen and a child is born with defects. And suppose we can no longer say with the psalmist, return, O Lord, how long have pity on thy servants. If we are not simply cooperators in and with a power greater than our own, we are the life-givers who bear responsibility for the quality of the life we give. 
If we merely cooperate with a power greater than our own, our task is to benefit as best we can the life this child has. When we become the life givers, we may be asked whether it is a benefit to have such a life. Reaching that high, we may fall into a state less than human. For in accepting such responsibility for the next generation, in allowing ourselves even to suppose that it could be a fitting role for human beings, we lose the fundamental human capacity to love, to say to our children, to the next generation, it's good that you exist. And once again, instead of equal human dignity for all born of human parents, we will see a fundamental divide erupt among us. Some will bear a quasi-divine responsibility. Others whose lives do not meet our standards will be put out of their misery. Better perhaps to learn to affirm and honor our peculiar place between the beasts and God. In accepting our limits, we accept the fact that there may be suffering which could be relieved, but ought not. Ought not because there is no right way, no fittingly human way to do so. This does not mean, however, that those who suffer do so alone. Quite the contrary, Oliver O'Donovan, noting how suffering has become almost unintelligible for us, has distinguished between compassion and sympathy. I'm not sure that in our ordinary language we use the words quite in this way, but the conceptual distinction is all that really uh, counts for me here. O'Donovan writes this. Sympathy is the readiness to suffer with others and enter into the dark world of their griefs. Compassion is the determination to oppose suffering. It functions at arm's length, basing itself on the rejection of suffering rather than the acceptance of it. Since we cannot imagine suffering as our own willed project, and since we have come to suppose that all moral order has its ground in our will, Suffering must, by definition, be morally unintelligible for us. We can interpret it only as a defeat, though we may live to fight another day. For Christians, the ills to which this mortal human life is subject, the sufferings we bear, are, as Princeton's William F. May has put it, real but not ultimate. They are real, sometimes terrible, and we must oppose them as best we can within the limits appropriate to creatures such as we are. But we cannot possibly take their measure rightly if, as May puts it, we cannot believe that the decisive powers in the universe could possibly do anything worthwhile in and through the suffering we and others undergo. However deep and profound our suffering, the fates have given mortals hearts that can endure. Hence, though suffering and dying are a great crisis of this bodily life, the very deepest problem is the isolation and abandonment they seem to bring. If we are to endure, we need from others, in O'Donovan's sense, not just compassion, but sympathy, that readiness to enter into the dark world of the sufferer. And if we are to make sense of our humanity, of the heavy yet limited responsibility we bear, the divine corporation will need more than just a uniquely qualified supervisor. That supervisor might be capable of compassion, 
but we will need sympathy. When in that most famous of scenes, Priam comes to Achilles in his tent, and they give way to their common grief, Achilles says, let us put our griefs to rest in our own hearts, <coughs> rake them up no more, raw as we are with mourning. What goods to be won from tears that chill the spirit? So the immortals spun our lives that we, we, we wretched men live on to bear such torments. The gods live free of sorrows. But perhaps those are not the gods we need if we are to be fully human. For living free of sorrows, they do not promise true sympathy. This is most strikingly apparent when Hector confronts Achilles, terrible in his power and anger, and Athena, who's really on Achilles' side, comes to Hector in the guise of his brother Deiphobus, promising deceitfully to help him in the fight. Come, let us stand our ground together, beat him back, she says to Hector. Deiphobus, Hector, his helmet flashing, called out to her, Dearest of all my brothers, all these warring years, of all the sons that Priam and Hecuba produced, now I'm determined to praise you all the more, you who dared, seeing me in these straits, to venture out from the walls all for my sake, while the others stay inside and cling to safety. Hector hurls his spear, but it glances off Achilles' shield. He stood there, cast down. He had no spear in reserve. So Hector shouted out to Deiphobus, bearing his white shield. With a ringing shout, he called for a heavy lance. But the man was nowhere near him, vanished. Yes, and Hector knew the truth in his heart. I thought he was at my side, the hero Deiphobus. He's safe inside the walls. Rather different is the picture we find in Mark's Gospel. In that story, it is not too strong to say that God dies outside the walls of the city, sharing the mortality that marks human life. And it is of that dead man on the cross that the Roman centurion says in the gospel's climactic statement, truly this man was the son of God. This God does not live free of sorrows. He accepts the mortality that marks our in-between place and is therefore also one of us. In a world governed by such a God, we can find and accept our place. We can live out the role given us in faith and hope. We can, that is, ourselves become fully human. Thank you very much. Responding to Professor Mylander will be my senior colleague, Jeffrey Stout, of the Religion Department, where he served as chair from 1992 to 1999. A second edition of Professor Stout's book, Ethics After Babel, The Languages of Morals and Their Discontents, was published by Princeton University Press earlier this year. Professor Stout. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, 25 years ago, Gil Mylander did look exactly the way he looks today. I, however, had a beard that was out to here. 
And if you can bring those images to mind, perhaps you could have predicted the different lines we would be taking today. Gil Mylander uh, has given us an elegant and uh, even elegiac uh, paper. He laments the passing of an age in which human beings knew the meaning of being human. He speaks as one who remains faithful to the ancient verities, a keeper of the flame. Once upon a time, he says, human beings knew their place in the chain of being. The beasts beneath us have no responsibilities to exercise, at least none that they take on themselves. God above is author of all things, the one who, by assigning us roles in the given social order, gives us limited areas of responsibility. To be fully human is to acknowledge our responsibilities and the limits they entail without pretending to be their author. It is to trust in God as the one responsible for the whole scheme. When most people lived in something like, uh, in light of something like this vision, they lived genuinely human lives. But then, according to Mylander, something very bad happened. We effectively eliminated God from the picture and came to suppose, as he puts it, quote, that freedom is the sole truth of human existence. And as a result, we have denied the limits of our limited spheres of responsibility. We have made it our own responsibility to master death and suffering. We have begun to play God, thus turning ourselves into mere beasts. It is a familiar story, a tale about the demise of ethics in a secular age. But in Mylander's telling, uh, I catch hints that it also becomes a story about the demise of ethics at Princeton. The reference to Rousseau's speculations on interbreeding with the orangutans could be taken to allude to Peter Singer's view that the taboo against bestiality has no rational basis. Mylander contrasts Rousseau as a proxy for Singer with the late Paul Ramsey, an earlier Princeton authority on the ethics of biomedicine, and with C.S. Lewis, on whom Mylander wrote his doctoral dissertation under Ramsey's direction a quarter century ago. Mylander proceeds to offer us a series of starkly defined choices which turn out to be uh, a single uh, choice. Between those who worship God, like Ramsey and Lewis, and those who worship freedom, like Rousseau and Singer, between those who recognize limits and those who do not, between those who behave like human beings and those who dream of sex with the beasts. Now, if one had only Mylander's paper to go on, one wouldn't guess that there are many sincere religious thinkers who reject his conservative positions on prenatal screening, euthanasia, and assisted suicide. Nor would one guess that there are many secular thinkers 
who have rejected the ideal of unconstrained freedom as vacuous and dangerous. But in both cases, there are such thinkers. So Mylander's account of our options is, at least in this respect, misleading. The story he uses to frame those options, I want to argue, is inadequate. To see why, let's do a little history together. One problem here is the simple relationship that Mylander posits between theology and conceptions of the scope of human responsibility. As Mylander portrays this relationship, those who believe strongly in divine sovereignty would not be expected to argue for enlarging the scope of human responsibility. But this expectation does not pan out historically. Consider the Calvinists who fought the English Revolution. Being Calvinists, they believed firmly in the sovereignty of God. But they also believed God had called them to transform England's social structure, to take responsibility for it. And this entailed rejection on their part of the notion that the social structure should be seen as something essentially static, part of the created order itself, and willed by God in its given form. There has never been a more dramatic expansion of the scope of human responsibility than the one they undertook, at least not up to our own generation. And it was inspired by theological convictions. Professor Mylander, being a Lutheran, is suspicious of the Calvinist impulse to take responsibility for the basic structure of society. A prominent theme in Lutheran ethics is the idea that family, state, and church are divinely mandated orders of creation, given by God for the benefit of humanity and therefore not to be tampered with by us. Mylander is being faithful to this strand of Lutheran tradition when he argues in, uh, on other occasions that same-sex marriage violates the order of things as God intends them. He speaks for the same tradition today in his comments on prenatal screening and euthanasia. The crucial assumption that Mylander seems to be making here is that he knows what the divinely given social structures and behavioral limits are. He is quick to explain away the doubts of those who do not share his certainty on these matters as sinful self-assertion against divine sovereignty. But consider the early modern disagreements among Lutherans, Calvinists, and Catholics on whether reigning kings should be presumed to have God's permission to rule. Each group claimed to know something the others didn't know. Each explained the other's ignorance as the fruit of sin, as a willful turning against God. Now, I find it hard, looking back, to credit either the prideful knowledge claims or the uncharitable explanations of error that fueled these disagreements and dragged Europe into the age of religious warfare. 
it seems more plausible to suppose that the existence and nature of God, the social system we ought to be striving for, and the behavioral limits we ought to accept are all things that reasonable people with good intentions can be expected to construe differently. It would be nice if we could talk these matters through in a way that acknowledges this, in a way that didn't add fuel to the culture wars. Take the issue of prenatal screening. Suppose we came across an embryo that, if carried to term, was certain to be born as a terminal patient undergoing horrific suffering. Shouldn't we at least ask whether it should be carried to term? I take it that Mylander thinks not. He claims that, and I'm quoting now from his paper, quote, in allowing ourselves even to suppose that deciding this matter could be a fitting role for human beings, we lose the fundamental capacity to love, to say to our children, it's good that you exist. Let me just uh, read that again. In allowing ourselves even to suppose that deciding this matter could be a fitting role for human beings. We lose the fundamental human capacity to love, to say to our children, it's good that you exist. So my first question for Professor Mylander is, uh, how does this conclusion follow, or from what does it follow? Mylander says that even to give moral standing, as he puts it, to questions about euthanasia or assisted suicide is, as he puts it, to live a lie. One such question is whether we might owe it to a suffering terminal patient in certain extreme circumstances to hasten his or her death. Suppose I take this question seriously and in that sense, give it moral standing. Does that mean that I am lying? A willful deceiver? Someone deliberately twisting a truth that is plain for all to see? I don't think so. It simply makes me a person who is prepared to ask hard questions about what justice and charity actually require about how to formulate and apply the norms that constitute our ethical inheritance. That inheritance is not as static as Mylander makes it out to be. We should all be grateful to the Calvinist revolutionaries who raised basic questions about the norms and roles of their day. They helped us jettison the roles of king, prince, and nobleman. They helped us become citizens instead of mere subjects. I am glad that later generations of Christian and other reformers managed to change the social structure in various other ways. For example, by eliminating slavery, enfranchising women, and outlawing racial discrimination. 
Christians who opposed these historic achievements often claimed to know that God had authored the prevailing social structure and authorized a conservative interpretation of received ethical limits. Well, when when such claims are used to block the questioning of our roles and rules today, we ought to be suspicious. If Mylander fails to account for the complexities of our religious history, he also neglects secular thinkers who do not fit into his account of our options. Consider Hegel, a great secular champion of modern freedom, who was also, uh, in point of fact, uh, deeply indebted to Lutheran theology. He took seriously the notion that family, state, and civil society should be seen as limited spheres of ethical responsibility. But he sought to reconcile this Lutheran affirmation with the modern recognition that each of these spheres embodies normative constraints for which society as a whole bears collective responsibility. In Hegel's view, the terror of the French Revolution had its source in unconstrained freedom. He argued that the only freedom worth having is to be found in practices that are constrained by norms. But not just any norms. Rather, norms that can be accepted as rationally defensible by a community dedicated to talking these matters through, which of course means being ready to ask the hard questions. The idea that true freedom is a function of constraint by rationally acceptable norms can be found in Kant and Dewey as well, and not only in them. It is because I am committed to this idea that I can find no place for myself in Mylander's story. Mylander offers us only two options. Perhaps he will offer us more in the question and answer period. But the paper offers us only two options. The first is a set of given roles and rules, which seem to be immediately evident to true believers. The second is the utterly unconstrained freedom of vicious secularism. And I am arguing that this is a false choice. The believers disagree among themselves. Some argue for the divinely inspired transformation of the roles and rules that others take to be divinely ordained. And many secular thinkers have rejected the ideal of unconstrained freedom. So Mylander isn't giving us the full story. I would argue that all of us, believers and unbelievers, are in the same boat. We are all constrained by an ethical inheritance, a somewhat untidy collection of evolving practices, institutions, and norms. But none of us can escape the responsibility of determining for ourselves what that inheritance means 
and whether it needs to be revised in some way as new problems uh, arise on the horizon. This is part of what it means to be self-consciously human, to take a measure of responsibility for the interpretation and upkeep, possible critical revision, of one's ethical inheritance while recognizing that others bear the same responsibility. It is to see our community as one in which we hold one another responsible in light of our inherited norms. Among the things we hold one another responsible for is what we make of those norms. Thank you very much. It's a good thing this session didn't raise any big questions because we only have a half an hour until lunchtime. Um, the floor is open. Lee. Well, no, of course not. I didn't say that we shouldn't. In fact, I very specifically said that uh, on any occasion when we could find what we regarded as a morally acceptable way to try to relieve suffering, um, we had every reason to be glad and no reason to oppose it. All I wanted to do was um, recognize the fact that someone who makes the kind of moral commitments that I sketched out in the first part of the paper might encounter circumstances in which he'd find himself in a position where he said uh, the only way to relieve this suffering is to do something that's wrong and hence that's suffering that we can't relieve. But the general project of trying to uh, ameliorate suffering, I don't think that there's anything I said that uh, calls that into question or uh, uh, opposes it in any way. Could I just, I'll repeat the question because some people can hear. The question is, if the task of being human is to accept suffering, how can Professor Mylander justify medicine or efforts to alleviate suffering? Well, I would say death in specific. Death in specific. To be honest, I don't think that I'm doing something that's very unusual here. Um, just get yourself into another area of uh, reflection entirely. Um, it, uh, let, it, it might be very, very good to um, uh, put the Taliban out of existence. Okay? That doesn't alter the fact that there might be ways of doing that that we ought not uh, uh, undertake because there's something morally wrong about them. Same thing here. There, there are uh, 
countless ways to try to relieve suffering. Many of them, there's nothing morally objectionable to try to keep people alive. That doesn't alter the fact that there might be circumstances in which we found that, you know, some proposed way or the only way was one that we regarded as morally objectionable. That's, I mean, it's a, uh, it, it, it's of course arguable and it may be wrong, but I don't think there's anything peculiar about that kind of uh, view that I'm putting forward. Yes. Well, I should be able to handle that quickly. Um, yeah, could you repeat the question? Uh, she was uh, inquiring about a particular case in which um, her father, I think she said, um, uh, now you, d you described him as having no brainwave activity and all. I'll come back to that in a moment. But uh, at any rate, um, the doctor said he could no longer be fed without a feeding tube being inserted uh, in the stomach, and she wanted to know what the morally correct uh, thing to say on that was. Um, uh, one just complication in, uh, in the question, if, if he really had a complete no brain activity, uh, a, a sort of a, a flat EEG, um, he would ordinarily be considered dead uh, now. I mean, actually, it's interesting that brain death definition has come under uh, criticism in some bioethics quarters in recent years, but it has been fairly generally accepted. Now, what he probably had was, I suspect, was some kind of brain stem activity at least, um, uh, but had lost uh, self-awareness and uh, consciousness. Otherwise, I don't think a doctor would have proposed a feeding tube. Um, well, look, at this is a very, this is a hard, uh, complicated question. Um, uh, I, in, in, in 1984, um, at a time when I would say in, in the bioethics world sort of generally, uh, opinion was in flux on the feeding tube question. There would have been a time when it would probably have just been assumed that you know, if we could, we should use a feeding tube, and opinion was changing. And in 1984, at that moment, I wrote an article opposing the removing of feeding tubes from uh, patients who had irreversibly lost uh, 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 cortical, neocortex activity. Um, and that article was so persuasive that I would say that the general consensus now is that feeding tubes can be removed uh, uh, from such patients. But I've lost a lot of arguments in my life, and that uh, doesn't uh, deter me. Um, I, think it depends on, I think it depends on a whole bunch of uh, issues. There are circumstances in which um, uh, physicians will say that uh, pumping uh, uh, calories into a, a dying person, if we, if we have what we have is a dying person, um, uh, only prolongs their dying and possibly even increases suffering, and there, I don't see any reason to uh, feed somebody under such circumstances. The really tough case is a, pace, a patient who is um, uh, 
in a persistent vegetative state who might live for years uh, if fed. Um, it has always seemed counterintuitive to me to call such a patient terminally ill. Um, uh, and therefore, to tell you the truth, if that were the description, I'd feed him. Could I ask you to stand up? And uh, we're simultaneously putting this on the web, so it's, we want to make sure people can watch it. Professor Singer, you have a question? Well, to start, uh, very simply, yes, I do think that that anencephalic infant is uh, your and my equal, okay, and therefore has all the claims on the rest of us that you and I have. That's where I start. Um, now, the therefore, what follows the therefore, however, is more complicated. Um, and to some degree, I mean, I'm not a physician. To some degree, you know, I need... Uh, I would need to talk to physicians about it, but I think the, I mean, my understanding is that the practice of uh, not 
subjecting encephalic infants to intensive care is based on the theory, that the premise that they are in fact dying patients and that there's, it's not an issue of burden but of uh, futility. Um, well, that may or may not be true. Well, that, that, that may or may not be true, um, uh, but um, uh, that, that I think has been the, uh, I mean, I, I don't think I'm wrong in saying that that's the, the general premise that's been at work. Now, it, you know, could be argued, and it's, it's perhaps wrong. But insofar as that's the premise, um, no more than I think we have to do, I mean, again, I have to trot out the reasoning and so forth, but I don't, I don't think we have to do everything to keep anybody alive. I mean, there are, there are treatments that are useless and ought to be imposed for a person who still has uh, consciousness, for instance. So, so the simple fact that I think that um, uh, Jeff Stout has equal human dignity uh, uh, with the rest of us doesn't mean that I think that we have to do everything possible to keep him alive. In other words, there are reasons why. Uh, well, a lot. We'd have to do a lot, of course. But, but before that, we'd have to correct him on a couple things. But, but, um, uh, but I mean, in your paper, you should be careful of your thought experiment. Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, so, so, so there are reasons why treatment may, may be refused or dispensed, and and. Uh, you know, that's what I think about in that case. The, the larger question you raised about, I don't remember how you put it exactly, but the basis for this judgment about uh, equal dignity. Oh, I, I might say, um, one thing I, for instance, one thing I would not do, yeah, e even accepting the view that it's futile to treat and I wouldn't subject that infant to um, uh, all sorts of intensive care, I wouldn't take advantage of uh, uh, its few days of life to... Uh, take its organs out for transplant. Um, uh, you know, I mean, that, that actually, that's been the main interest in anencephalic infants. Um, but, but the larger question about the basis for this human dignity, what, what, I, what I, I mean, a little too briefly, but best I can do at the moment, would be to say I would want to distinguish between, uh, to make a distinction between what I would call the, the distinguishing characteristics of the human species, and certainly some of the things you mentioned are among those distinguishing characteristics, and the, the criteria for belonging to the species. Um, and you don't have to be exercising or have the capacity to exercise all the distinguishing characteristics of the species in order to belong to the species. For that, you need only be begotten of human parents. That's my view. So I'd want to distinguish, I want to make a difference between the distinguishing characteristics and the criteria for belonging. Those other it's not that those other characteristics have no moral significance, but that um, uh, human beings have moral obligations to each other that uh, uh, I don't think, see, I'm, I'm not prepared to, uh, uh, to get any lower than that. That's as far as I can go with it. The, to, me, to me, suggesting that the reason uh, I should value a human being's life is because of that human, the particular capacities that human being has, is to get the thing exactly inverted, uh, you see. Um, uh, and so, I mean, there, there, there are questions that, of that sort that can't finally be answered. To see through everything is not to see, finally. Yes, so gentlemen. Yes, you.
Say just the last part again. Need I repeat the question? Yeah. Um, the, the, the first part of the question um, raised doubts about uh, my introduction of the, uh, of the Calvinist revolutionaries, and the question was whether that was relevant to the discussion of these issues regarding procreation and the end of life. The second part of the question was the very large issue of, uh, and I think you put it in two different ways. One was whether, uh, whether religious truths can be known, and the other was whether uh, moral truths could be known. Um, the, uh, let me take the first part first. The, uh, yes. There, there are quite different issues raised in these two areas, the question of the basic structure of society and the question of uh, how to handle these biomedical questions. The issue I was trying to address directly with the Calvinist uh, material was the more abstract question of the scope of human responsibility. And I wanted to make it clear that the highly abbreviated story of the decline of the divine corporation model that Professor Mylander introduced um, gave a somewhat misleading view of the relation between doctrines of divine sovereignty and views of the scope of human responsibility. And it seems to me that the Calvinist uh, material is relevant to that question. Uh, once we establish a view uh, of how to answer that question, then we can have an informed way of discussing uh, the other issues. But it, it, it seems to me that uh, it's inappropriate to, uh, to point to uh, an oversimplified version of the theological history here as, as a way of limiting even raising the questions uh, on these matters of biomedicine. As for the issue, uh, this much harder issue of uh, whether there can be knowledge of uh, religious truths and knowledge of ethical truths, um, my goodness, I have no idea how to ad address this in a brief compass. But let me, let me say this as a way of following up on something that was said last night. Um, my, my own view is that uh, is quite distinct from Peter Singer's uh, on this matter. Peter Singer argued yesterday that, uh, maybe I was misunderstanding him, but he seemed to be arguing that uh, one could be justified in believing something only under circumstances in which one could provide evidence from which it could be inferred. I think this actually proposes a standard for justified belief which is very much too high. And if that were the standard, 
for justified human belief. I think very few of us would be justified in believing most of what we believe on any topic. The reason for this, uh, one reason for this, is that most of what we believe, or at least much of what we believe, is not acquired through inference from evidence. It's, it's acquired through acculturation, through being raised within a tradition uh, that gives us countless beliefs that are counted as justified within the relevant tradition until such problems arise withholding them that one needs to abandon them. In other words, my own view of these matters is that on most issues, we as individuals are, uh, our beliefs are in effect uh, justified until proven guilty uh, rather than uh, guilty until proven innocent by appeal to, to evidence. Now, if this is the view of justification, if you hold my view of justification, uh, then it turns out that many people are, most of us are justified uh, prima facie in holding the beliefs we already hold on matters uh, 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 pertaining to ethics and religion as well as other topics. And we ought to uh, grant others the charitable assumption that they too, even on points where they disagree with us, are, for the most part, justified in holding the beliefs they hold. Until those beliefs are expressed, excavated, made explicit, and subjected to critical questioning, and it is an appropriate function of public debate to push people to the point where their own premises can be exposed and subjected to questioning in a way that might end up making those views problematical. Uh, can we know truths in any of these areas? Uh, if the standard of justification is roughly what I said, uh, then I would think so. Uh, but should we act as if we were certain of these matters? Um, in many cases, no. And I wanted my contribution to this symposium to be that of someone who is not professionally a bioethicist, but who comes at this um, feeling much less certainty on almost all of these issues than most of the people who define the public debate on the topic. Uh, beginning at one side with Professor Mylander and at the other, Professor Singer. Uh, a plea from the ordinary citizens to say, um, uh, pl please let us talk about this in a reasonable way uh, without uh, being so sure that the people to the right of Professor Singer and the people to the left of Professor Mylander are necessarily Vice on, versa. Yeah. <laughs> or, on a, <laughs> or on a slippery slope uh, uh, careening toward these more extreme positions. Is there an undergraduate with the, in the back row? Yeah.
the question is about administering Prozac to people at the end of their lives. Um, Sir Mylander, I assume that's for you. Well, I, um, I, I find it difficult to say a lot about particular cases without knowing a little more about uh, particular cases than that. And so I'm, I'm reluctant to, I mean, one of the things I don't like is about bioethics is to um, uh, just treat it as sort of here's a problem, here's an answer uh, uh, for the particular case. Uh, contrary to uh, uh, Jeff's uh, desire to uh, uh, paint me as quite that certain, um, uh, so it's always nice to be in the middle of uh, Extreme. I've only known you for 25 right. years. Right. <laughs> um, Well, uh, let me let me um, let me first come back to uh, uh, the student's question uh, back there, and then, if I may, say a word on okay. that question. Um, uh, again, I, with, you know, it's, it's hard to respond uh, with limited knowledge, but if uh, in this in this sense, I agree with the uh, uh, the doctor's comment that if if it somehow um, uh, eases the dying uh, that cannot any longer be uh, warded off, then it may well be uh, acceptable and uh, suitable treatment. Um, uh, that said, um, I mean, there, there's actually a lot at stake in some respects. I mean, sometimes the language of medical ethics and bioethics is used interchangeably, um, and there's nothing terrible about that uh, in any way. But uh, insofar as we make a distinction between the two, one might think of medical ethics as a kind of a received ethic internal to the practice of medicine, uh, derived by reflection upon uh, the interaction of caregiver and care receiver, and, uh, and uh, the sense that certain, um, uh, certain obligations arise out of that. Uh, by contrast, bioethics is sometimes thought of as a field of applied ethics in which we, we have more externally derived principles, which we then apply to cases in uh, medical ethics. And it's a fine argument, actually, which, uh, uh, which is the better way to proceed. Um, if we had Leon Cass here, he'd want to uh, pick up immediately on your claim that medical ethics is, as it were, internally derived or from reflection upon practice. Jim Childress is sitting right back there, and he'd want to give a somewhat different answer uh, uh, to that question. So um, it's, a, it's actually an issue that's received a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of attention. Maybe one more question. Yes. 
Maybe ultimately what? question is, is, could the divine corporation be constructed by humanity uh, as its own set of rules, which can be a kind of fundamentalism? Maybe take this as an opportunity, Gil, to respond to Professor Stout's uh, response to your paper as well. Okay. Final comment. Um, uh, I mean, the, the, the deepest issue you raise is a very complex one about what we would mean by revelation and how we'd know it when we found it, uh, kind of. And, and that's probably beyond my competence to answer not only now, but maybe uh, if you gave me a lot longer. But um, uh, the... Uh, the simpler version of your question has to do simply with whether uh, uh, these rules are kind of simply our construction. And I think it would be true to say that Christian, I'll just stick with Christians for the moment. Uh, uh, Christians ha have not only not wanted to say that about them, but have not thought that. And one of the reasons is that they think of themselves as uh, uh, judged by them. See, um, uh, so that so that in fact it, it is in some sense uh, a, a word that does not just um, uh, undergird our natural aspirations, but calls them into question and judges them, and that's that's part of uh, the sense in which they're not thought to be our own uh, our own construction, um, and and that does relate in a way to uh, some of the things that uh, Jeff had uh, had to say, who by the way um, uh, has me. Pegged is a very different sort of Lutheran than I actually am, um, but uh, uh, but but um, when when those uh, Calvinists set out to uh, behead a king and um, transform a world, uh, they didn't just think that they were uh, exercising mastery or taking control or anything like that. I mean, they did act like masterful men on many occasions, but um, they had a lot of trouble. Uh, uh, figuring out whether they were justified in doing that, and they wouldn't have been able to figure it out if they hadn't had in Calvin's Institutes uh, the famous lesser magistrates passage, um, uh, which told them that, in fact, the only magistrate was not the king, but that other people occupied magisterial offices, so that, so that they, uh, yes, they engaged in a work of transformation, but they engaged in a work of transformation within certain uh, categories that authorized it and justified it. It was not just uh, uh, setting out to uh, change the world, and indeed uh, they, they argued for a pretty long time before they, uh, before they figured that out. So I actually think that the story is more complicated than, uh, than Professor Stout's uh, version of the story is, and that if all the complications were told, we would find that uh, Mylander's version of the story was pretty sound, actually. Thank you very much, Professors Mylander and Stout. Uh, we now are breaking for lunch. There's a sheet with area restaurants for those of you not from the area. And we'll return at 1.30 here in this room, 1.30 for the l 